Well, good morning, King's Cross. My name is Matt. I have the privilege of serving here as a pastoral resident. It's such a joy to gather together week in and week out to sing God's praises, to offer our prayers, and to receive his word preached. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, I just personally want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here. I'm not sure what's going on in your life or what is bringing you here this morning, but I do know this, that you don't have to leave today the same as when you came in. If you already know the Lord Jesus, you could leave loving him more and following him more faithfully. And if you're not a Christian, my prayer for you this morning is that you would experience the forgiving grace of God and that you would leave treasuring Jesus more than anything. Let's go to the Lord again and ask for his help. Father, we praise you. Help us now to behold wonderful things from your word. Confirm your word to us so that it produces reverence for your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you can visualize the scene. A king. A king on his way to Jerusalem. A crowd that is following him in sheer amazement. Very soon, people are going to be lining the streets, laying down their cloaks, laying down their branches and shouting, Hosanna in the highest. We're just a chapter away from that. But before that triumphal entry, do you see the king traveling in this passage? Can you visualize him surrounded by a crowd, walking down the road with people all around him, difficult to even get a glimpse of his face, there's so many. And do you hear all the chatter, all the rumble, all the commotion? Jesus is here. Jesus is on his way. And as you listen to all this, do you notice on the side two blind beggars? The ones who hear that Jesus is passing by. Amidst all the excitement and in the middle of the sea of people, while the king is busy. Let's turn there, verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. Do you see those two blind beggars on the side? reaching out to Jesus as though they actually have the right to get a king's attention. That's why the crowd rebukes them and tells them to be silent. They don't think that they should be approaching this king. I wonder how the king will treat the beggars. How do you imagine a typical king would treat beggars on the side of the road when they're in the midst of an important journey? And will this king rebuke them? Will this king tell them to be silent? Or is this king a different kind of king altogether? You see, this morning's text is all about Jesus, the promised king who serves his people and suffers for them. 
It contains three sections that might seem disjointed at first. In verses 17 through 19, Jesus predicts his own death and burial and resurrection for the third time in this gospel. And then we come to verses 20 through 28, which contain a question that James and John's mother asks on their behalf. Can can they, can her son sit at Jesus' right and at Jesus' left in the kingdom? And then finally, our passage this morning ends with two blind beggars. They have a request of their own. So we have a third prediction, two brothers, two beggars. What do these have to do with one another? I think that we'll come to see that taken as a whole in this text, we have a glorious picture of a glorious king, a king who serves his people and suffers for them. These are not three separate stories with nothing to do with one another. No, it's a proclamation predicting that Jesus is going to suffer, followed by 12 disciples who don't get it. They are not ready to serve and to suffer at this point in time. Two of them ask for power and the other 10 get mad that they did because they want it. And then this is all followed by an act of service by Jesus himself. That's the order. Proclamation followed by disciples not getting it, followed by Jesus showing it. Proclamation of suffering and serving followed by selfishness, followed by service. Jesus is the promised king who serves his people and suffers for them. That's what you ought to know about Jesus when you leave this morning. And knowing him makes all the difference in the world. So we're going to meditate on two things together. First, that Jesus is indeed the promised king. And second, he's the suffering servant king. He's the promised king who serves and suffers for them. Let's begin with this reality that Jesus is the promised king. We see it come through in several ways. We see it in the crowd's praise, for instance. Notice in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Now listen, great crowds don't follow and praise and laud unimportant people. It's obvious to them that Jesus is a big deal in this moment. And this is probably just a portion of what will become an even bigger crowd in the next chapter when Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king. So we see it in the crowd's praise. But we also see this truth in a mother's question. James and John... Those are the sons of Zebedee. Their mother comes to Jesus asking a question for them. Let's read it, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, Jesus has already spoken about his kingship. In fact, in the previous chapter, he said to his disciples, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
So the mother of James and John picks up on this and she recognizes that somehow and in some way Jesus is to be king and he's going to have a throne and she wants her sons to be able to sit on the right and on the left of it in Jesus' kingdom. Now we'll talk about that request in a few minutes, but for now just recognize that she recognizes Jesus as a king. So we see this truth in the crowd's praise. We see it in a mother's question. And we see it in the blind men's faith. Notice what the two blind men say to Jesus in verse 30. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. What does this have to do with Jesus? What does it have to do with Jesus being a king? Now, the blind men must have heard all kinds of things about Jesus, how he healed the sick and he stopped storms and he cast out demons and he even raised a dead girl from the dead. And he is finally walking by and they're blind. This is their chance. He is their only hope. And what I find so incredible in this gospel is that so many people who had working eyes to see all of those miracles did not have spiritual eyes to see the one who performed them. But the blind men do. They call him son of David. In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, Jesus' birth is foretold by the angel Gabriel. And this is what Gabriel says to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel specifically said Jesus' father is David, this greatest king in Israel's history up to this point. This means that Jesus was to come from David's bloodline. And Gabriel saying there's this throne that he's going to have and this kingdom that will have no end. And so apparently these blind men know their theology They heard about what Jesus was doing, and instead of plotting to kill him or calling him a blasphemer or blaming his works on Satan, they called Jesus the fulfillment of God's promise. They knew Jesus was the promised king. Now, if you're wondering what promise, here's what God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. All the way back then, he says, When your days, David... Are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So when the blind men call the son of call Jesus the son of David, this is what they're saying. They're saying that when God made that promise, 
He was speaking about the very one who is now standing in front of their blind eyes. He is the promised king. And we need to be careful here because it's possible to dissect Jesus like a science project. To just do some Christology and recognize that Jesus is the son of David and he's the new Moses and he's the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 and he's the second Adam. And just dissect him like a frog, filling our brains with all these truths with no love and adoration for him. Friends, Jesus is not a project to be dissected. He is our God to be worshipped. The blind men didn't learn about Jesus and simply write a paper or bring some interesting facts to the next Bible study. They knew who Jesus was and they cried for mercy. It wasn't son of David, how interesting. It was son of David, have mercy on our souls. I wonder, how do you respond to who Jesus is? Do you respond with mere intellectual acknowledgement? Do you respond with indifference? Do you respond with total rejection? Or do you respond with love and adoration? Does knowing who he is move you to ask for mercy? It might make you wonder, this promised king, this son of David, what, what is he like? Perhaps you're here this morning and you may be asking for mercy. You may feel the weight of guilt crushing your soul. You may know that you need forgiveness from God. You might realize that you need the king of the universe to listen to you in a difficult time. And the question is, will he listen? Or will he do what the crowds did? Will he go about his merry way enjoying his throne without paying any attention to broken peasants like you and me? Look, the blind men can recognize Jesus as the promised king all they want. They can ask for mercy all they want. But whether or not they receive it, that's a question of what kind of king Jesus is. He is the promised king. But let's turn our eyes now to the kind of king he is. He is the suffering servant king. Over these next few minutes, I want to show you from this text that King Jesus is not unwilling to hear your pleas. He loves to hear them. You don't have to leave today the way that you came, not because of your ability to change, but because of the king's willingness to save and to listen and to sanctify and to serve. He truly is a king who serves his people and suffers for them. Let's behold that truth first through these misconceptions that come up in the passage. Misconceptions people had about Jesus. And here's the first one. That being close to the king means having selfish power, right? John and James wanted to sit in the place of power. And if you're familiar with this gospel, you'll remember that Jesus had an inner circle not made up of two, but of three. Consisted of James and John and Peter. But Peter has just recently been rebuked for running his mouth. 
And maybe this is James and John's opportunity to get closer to Jesus. Maybe they can sit at the right and the left and Peter can sit in one of the other ones. They have a selfish desire for power. That's what it means to be close to a king, right? Not this king. Read with me beginning in verse 21. He said to her, their mother, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Another allusion to his suffering. They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus, in some way, seems to dismiss the question, to call it out of bounds. This isn't for him to grant, and they're asking about things that they shouldn't even be asking about. Because it's not about striving for power and seats of honor and looking impressive in the kingdom. The misconception here is that being close to the king means having a type of power that we can wield for our own selfish desires. But Jesus isn't that kind of king. Of course, verse 24 says that the ten were indignant, angry at the brothers. Not because they really cared about doing the right thing. Most likely they wanted the place of honor. They want to be on the right and on the left of Jesus. They want selfish power. Now, I noticed something interesting. Perhaps you can consider whether or not this connection is truly there. It seems to be intentional. The other time that this phrase is used, one on the right, one on the left, is in chapter 27 when the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Perhaps being on his right and on his left is not about selfish power, but about dying to self. Jesus isn't the normal type of king that we're used to. We see it in this misconception. But there's another one. This idea that a king doesn't have time for the lowly. The crowds think that this point is obvious. Jesus is important. He's the center of attention. He's a busy man. We're his entourage. So neither he nor we have time for beggars. That's what it means to be close to a king, right? That's beneath us. Verse 30. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. The king doesn't have time for beggars, right? And I wonder if you ever feel this way. Left out, unheard, broken, hurt, forgotten, abandoned. And that's by mere people. Surely the king of the universe doesn't have time. So you think that you ought to be silent because what would he care? And my dear friend, that might be true of earthly kings, but it is not true of the heavenly king. 
It may be true of those around you, but it is not true of Jesus. So these misconceptions, they are simply that. They're misconceptions. James and John get it wrong in this moment. The crowds got it wrong. Jesus is not that type of king. He is the suffering servant king. And those two misconceptions make it clear. But I want you to look with me now, not at misconceptions. When we look at misconceptions, we find out that Jesus is not what people made him out to be. We find out who he isn't. But this text also clearly shows us who he is. Look at the statements Jesus makes. In verse 18, he pulls his disciples to the side and he begins to predict what's going to happen to him. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Many kings have entered with pomp and elaborate displays of might. Perhaps it feels that way to the disciples in this moment with this crowd that's surrounding him. His popularity is higher than ever, which means their popularity is higher than ever. He's about to enter into this wonderful historic city. People are going to shout words of adoration. And Jesus takes his disciples to the side and reminds them of why he's going. He's going to be condemned to death. Yes, he is the king. Yes, he will be raised from the grave. But don't forget that this road in this moment is a road of suffering. The crowds who praise him will become crowds who prosecute him. The king will be crowned, but with a crown of thorns. This is our king? Why would he do this? Why would he go to the cross? Look at this other statement Jesus makes in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this is spectacular. He came not to be served. He came to serve. I was in Little Ones a few weeks ago, and a Bible story was being read about King David. And the question was, does anyone know what a king is? And uh, one little boy happily chimed in and said, a king is someone who gets whatever they want. <laughs> now, of course, the Lord does all that he pleases but the emphasis that this child gave indicated that kings get served. They boss people around. They're always receiving. They're never giving. But Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. We are talking about the one who washed his disciples' feet. Something servants do, not kings. And when he began to do that to Peter, Peter vehemently disagrees. He says, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. In other words, I should serve you. You shouldn't be washing my feet. That's backwards. You're the king, not me. And Jesus, the master, the Lord, the king, responds to Peter. Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
If I don't wash you, you can't be mine. So Jesus came not to be served, but to serve in such a way that if he doesn't serve you, you can't be his. Can you even begin to fully fathom this? A king who won't let you in his kingdom, not because you haven't served him, but he won't let you in his kingdom if he hasn't served you. You mean to become his follower? I don't have to perform some remarkable act to prove my worthiness. I just need him to perform an act of undeserved grace. You see, Jesus didn't come as though he's needy. He came for those who are needy. And the only way to have a relationship with this king is to admit you're needy and to let him serve you. This is a remarkable king. Back in Matthew chapter 1, this prediction was made about Jesus. She, Mary, will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this is the greatest act of service that Jesus gives, saving people from their sins. And now in chapter 20, he makes it clear how he's going to do that. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is a price to be paid because we have sinned against a holy God. The price is death. It includes everything we see in verse 19, being condemned, being mocked, being flogged, being crucified. That's what we deserve, and Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem to do it. He's going to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom in the place of sinners. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're wondering what Christianity is all about. Maybe you just have a very simple but profound question. What do you have to do to become a Christian? What do you have to do to be forgiven? What do you have to do to have a relationship with your creator? Here's the answer. Jesus must serve you. Stop trying to serve God as though your acts of service can make up for your sins, as though they can satisfy a holy God in his wrath. He must serve you. So will you this morning receive his act of service, his suffering on the cross on your behalf? And for those who are already following Jesus, may we never become so conceited so strong in our faith, so mature in our theology, so prolonged in our walk that we begin to think that we don't need Jesus to serve us anymore. No, we do need his intercession and his boldness and his strength and his encouragement and his sanctification and on and on and on. Christians mature, but we never mature past needing Jesus. We advance but we never graduate from needing our Lord. So we see in Jesus' statements that he is the suffering servant king. But we also see it in the kingdom community that he creates. We see it in the way he prescribes his people to live. You can tell a lot about a leader by looking at those under their leadership. Angry and violent citizens could be an indicator of poor governance. 
Children's behavior could be an indicator of some of what's happening in the home. Disgruntled employees could be a window into how the employer treats them. What about Jesus and his citizens? How does he expect his citizens to live? What does he call the church to? Perhaps it's to feel entitled, better than others. Maybe it's to selfishly seek positions of power like these two brothers did, or to put other people down like the crowd did to the beggars. And when the brothers do ask for this seat of honor, Jesus dismisses the request. The other ten get angry, and so Jesus has to have a talk with all of them. Let's read, beginning in verse 24. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So all those misconceptions about what a king ought to be, Jesus addresses those. The leaders that these disciples see around them who get whatever they want by demanding and being served by others. He says, church, it shall not be so among you. And then he flips the whole economy of greatness. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So you want to know what kind of king Jesus is And look at how he calls his citizens to live. If you want to be great in his kingdom, serve others more. I love verse 28 because these citizens are not being asked to do anything that he hasn't done himself. We are to serve one another even as He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are to serve others in such a way that we've been served by the king. In such a way that others can see that we've been served by the king. And just pause for a moment there. Have you considered that connection? That perhaps the way that we serve and the way we love and the way that we care for one another shows the world what Jesus is like. I know you might be tired. I know you might find it hard to get along with certain people. I know that talking with folks after church can feel awkward. And inviting someone out to lunch can seem difficult. Getting involved in other people's lives is time-consuming. I realize that opening up your home takes work. And asking someone how they felt about the sermon takes intentionality. And of course, providing a meal or providing a helping hand to someone takes effort and often resources and money. I get it. Watching little ones on Sunday can seem terrifying. Helping a new neighbor move in is strenuous. 
I know that there are a million reasons why it is inconvenient to serve one another, but there is one incredible reason to do it. You have been served by Jesus. And when you serve others, it shows them what your king is like. Church, look around this room and see people that you have covenanted with to be a part of this church family. When you go home, consider your neighbors who live next door. Think about some of your coworkers that you might run into tomorrow. And then go and be great. Be great by serving them. So that Jesus might be more clearly seen as the suffering servant king. As Matthew says in chapter 5 verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, once again, I'm glad that you're here. And our prayer is that you would see a community of people in this church who love each other and who serve each other, not because we have the same skin tone and personality, not because we have the same cultural upbringing, not because we're in the same socioeconomic class or because we're in the same stage of life. When you see a peculiar love in this church, it's because of the way the king has loved us. We have a king who has served and suffered for us, and we'd love nothing more than for you to be a part of this faith family by trusting first in the one who created it. So we see this truth. Jesus is the suffering servant king. We see it in his statements. We see it in his kingdom community, and as we close, we'll see it in his compassion. Verse 29 as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. That's where we began. The crowds rebuke the beggars. And our question was, what will this king do, though? Will he also rebuke them? Or is he a different kind of king? Look what happens next in verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called them. And stopping. Do you see the compassion of Jesus in those two words? Because I'm pretty sure if we were the blind beggars, we would have felt it. Jesus is of the most, is of utmost importance. There's chaos all around him. Not only that, but the crowds are acting like his bodyguards, saying, you can't come near. They tell you to move out of the way. Jesus has somewhere to be soon, and he stops. He stops to talk with you. A nobody, a nuisance, an irritant to these other folks. But this king takes time to stop. It's true that the one who upholds the universe by his power, the one who holds all things together, the one who created every atom, the one who is in control is personal enough and compassionate enough to stop for you. 
even when the whole world rejects you. Now, if you knew that Jesus was this close and personal, if you really knew this, wouldn't this change your prayer life and your joy and your sense of loneliness? He is the suffering servant king. We see it in his compassion when he stopped. But look what else happened. In stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And I ask, do you see his compassion there? He could have stopped and told them to leave. He could have stopped and put them in their place. Instead, he asks a question. He asks what he could do for them. A king who doesn't start by asking people to do something for him. A king who asks how he may be of service. What if you knew, truly knew, that Jesus asks us, what do you want me to do for you? It reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Notice, he gives generously, meaning he loves to give. He doesn't give begrudgingly, holding back some. He gives generously to all, to all of his children, all of his kingdom citizens. It's not like he loves to help the pastors or like the successful or the more mature in their faith and loathes to help those who are stumbling through the Christian life. No, he gives generously to all. And then James says, without reproach. What does that mean? It means that when beggars ask for mercy, he doesn't look at them and say, You're asking again? It means he doesn't scoff at you when you need help again and strength again or boldness again or wisdom again or self-control again. He doesn't say, seriously, you again? No, he stops for the beggars. And he says with all compassion, what do you want me to do for you? And then we see this. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus was moved by pity. Splunk needs my compassion. Not only does Jesus stop for the beggars, not only does he ask them what they want him to do, but then he goes and does it because he is moved by pity. If you don't have a relationship with this king, I want to plead with you to do what these beggars did. Call to him. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to save you. Ask him to give you eyes to see his glory. He will not push you off or shrug you away. He won't tell you to move along and go and bother someone else. He will receive you with compassion because that's the kind of king he is. Members of King's Cross, what a shame it can be to enter the faith by grace just to try and keep going by our own strength. So go to him 
whenever you're weak. And go to him whenever you doubt. Go to him whenever you are afraid. Go to him whenever the appeal of sin is strong and you're struggling to fight it. Ask him for mercy. He will have compassion on you. Jesus is the promised king who serves his people and suffers for them. So run to him. Receive his service and his suffering in your place. There is no better king to have. Let's pray.